Have you ever met one of those people who just can't be stopped? It's like they're unstoppable. Yeah, I have. Me too. What's their mystique? Nothing stops these people. Welcome to Mission Unstoppable with Coach Frankie Picasso. You're about to meet some of the most amazing people. They've accomplished their goals despite insurmountable odds. They beat adversity, physical hardship, and traumatic events, and emerge triumphantly. They're people just like you and me, and they're winners. Are you unstoppable? Here's Frankie to show you how. Welcome. Hi. Welcome to Mission Unstoppable. I am your host, as you know, Frankie Picasso. And today with me, this beautiful lady is Marcy T. Rogers. And she is the CEO and founder of SpineMark. And she has built um, her executive career in the healthcare industry through the development of niche surgical centers of excellence. And I cannot wait to talk to her about those. SpineMark's mission is to create a universal standard for spine with the help of physicians and industry players to advance innovation in diagnostics, treatment, surgery, regenerative medicine, through clinical research. And this is very important because SpineWork has a consortium of early stage disruptive device, drug diagnostic and wellness products for commercialization. Um, I hope I pronounce it properly, but Prevacus and Previv Pro are part of that consortium and Marcy can uh, sort me out after. Um, <laughs> however, I, I kind of believe it might be the creation of her nonprofit 501c3 organizations to drive education, research, and care for the under or uninsured that might be her legacy. But we'll have to ask Marcy that herself. Marcy was recognized recently by Comerica Bank as its Women's Business Award Program that recognizes women in leadership in tribute to their contributions. And Marcy was honored in the category of Women of Business. So let's just bring her on and talk to her and say, hey, how are you? <laughs> Absolutely. Really. How does it feel? Um, I mean, you've been, you've been a, a leader, uh, probably a thought leader, a leader as an entrepreneur. Um, as a woman, you probably broke a lot of ceilings. Uh, for for the women who are for that. yeah for the women who are coming after you and so you know I'm going to thank you for that for them in advance uh, but it must be very um, rewarding. Well, you, you know, Frankie, the the most important part of my work has always been driven by a need to help patients, and you know, I'm if I'm anything, this was all because not this, not because of me, but because of the patients. And it started in, you know, 1978 with children with deformed faces. And that was 17 years of my life. Took it all the way to the White House, would share, got congressional hearings. Because these children were being hidden. Okay, and you're, you're, just, you're just whitewashing that. <laughs> you worked with Cher, who did the movie. Um, it was Mask, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and so we all saw that movie. And you started an organization. Based on right? a nonprofit, yeah. based on that, or it was based on your nonprofit, and right. and um, I know that you worked with Cher, and Cher took over for you when you had to move on, right, uh, from personal reasons. Right. So, so that's very exciting. Like, wow. Like, did you have a medical background when you got into this? <laughs> oh, that, this is the amazing part of the story. Um, when I met the Dr. Edgerton, who was one of the pioneers of craniofacial surgery, his son was in the same graduate class as my first husband. 
Oh. And so it was, it was karma, really. He met me at, at a dinner. They invited us to their house because they were good friends, his son and my uh, former husband. And uh, he said, well, do you, I don't know what you do. And I, I don't really know. I know you don't have a medical background, but you have more energy than anybody I've ever met. So come to this clinic, meet these children and tell me if you think you can help. And I walked into a room with 20 families and the faces like you've never seen in anything in your life. And it was like, I said, yeah, this is where I belong. Wow. I love that. We share that. I think, you know, cause I, I, I paint for faces really not the same kind of dis disfigurement, but um, cloth palette, which I, I feel is just like a really easy, quick fix for something that's going to change your life. Like, immeasurably so that, that's pretty cool so you went from there to you, you got divorced I believe and then you, you moved to where I moved to uh, LA because it was one of those war of the roses divorces yeah uh, he was the craniofacial surgeon you know I was the uh, person who worked with all the patients right and kind of built the practice and so I went somewhere where and it was very public okay because it was so nasty uh that the media would stop at nothing because you know people were fueling it I'll just sure. yeah. and so um i went somewhere where i didn't know anybody because i just and actually i had lost everything and so i went to work as a file clerk at children's hospital in la um and you know that was the beginning of it of my reinventing myself. Um, I took every temp job I could because I had to survive. Um, and so, but you know, I never lost sight of the children. They still stayed in touch with me. I have patients that I helped one of the first ones ever have craniofacial surgery that we talk every day because we love football. Wow. I bought them a computer so we could wrangle about football together. Uh, so I still have all those people. The little boy I brought to the White House that played for Mrs. Bush, I had dinner with his family and, and Jermaine last year when I was in Baltimore. So they've remained in my life. That's an important part. And now I have a whole new group of patients I've worked with, with pain, spine, mainly adults. And they just show up. I don't do it for money, Frankie. I do it to help. Them. Well, that's what I heard about you is that you sometimes even pay for patients yes, that can't I pay have. for themselves. That's really a beautiful thing. It really is. It really shows where your heart is. And yes. it, yeah, I, I, I really feel like people who are, you know, do that kind of work that you do, not that people should be paying for everybody. No, but, but that should, you know, heart should be first. I, Passion me, first. My, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I do believe in that. Yeah. I want to know about the centers, Marcy. I want to know about the centers because I got very excited when I read about that, and I'll tell you why after. Um, so you started these these niche surgical centers. Um, right. With a team. With a team. team so somebody, you know, um, needs to fill out a form. There's somebody there that knows how to do that kind of, kind of thing in your center. That's Well, the, here's the thing. Most of these, and, and, and this was starting the, the model I use, I... I started in craniofacial surgery because I was the coordinator. And all of these children needed to see the orthopedic, the primary care, the physical therapist, because they have webbed fans, hands and feet, not just their face, all kinds of things. So that model I took over to spine, not that it's unique, but because it, it takes a team of doctors, not just one doctor 
in one location. Yeah. And, and that whole approach <laughs> is about taking into account the person as a whole, whether it's a child or an adult. So what it is, is it starts with a, with a coordinator who helps the patients put the records together, and then it proceeds through the, the workup and the treatment plan and the diagnostics, and then the finally whatever they're supposed to get done. So it's virtual. You don't have to build a building to do it, but you do have to have a team that likes to work together and once a month collaborate on the case and talk about it. And so that's, that's the model. Why the spine? How did you well, pick the spine? You know, it kind of picked me because when I moved to um, LA, um, there was a, a fairly known anesthesiologist, a very colorful one at best, so to speak. And he had this whole big center for pain. And I thought pain was you take aspirins, you take drugs. And I went, he asked me to come help work for him, very much like my start in you know, craniofacial. And so I went there and I was amazed at people um, having these procedures and these injections. And it hit me, everything I'd done in craniofacial needed to be done in pain. Yeah. So that's how I got started there. And one of the most compelling reasons was the fact that, you know, there's one in 200,000 children that have a horrible deformity. There's one in 15,000 with a cleft lip and palate. But in spine, there's 6.8 billion people worldwide. Wow. Billions disabled yeah. by back pain. Yeah. They don't know where to go. They don't know what to do. Um, they get into this circle of, okay, I'm going to go see the surgeon. Well, but maybe you don't need a surgeon right now. Um, maybe you need some chiropractic care. And, and we know that in 80% of the time, physical therapy and non-interventional kinds of work, injections help and they eliminate the need. So I got into that because I thought, well, if I could do it with where I had been, there's a bigger need out there and there's more patients. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm going to tell you a little story. I was, I was in a motorcycle accident and was in the hospital for six months. And so oh. while I was in the hospital, I was thinking of these surgical centers that you were thinking about. Because after I got out, I had to go see this, you know, occupational therapist. Uh, uh, and they were all in different places. Were, everywhere yeah, was different. And because it was an insurance case, right. you, know, you had to go see, for DAX, you had to go see the, these doctors and the insurance companies wanted you to go see those doctors. And, and you know, then finding the lawyers and all of this, I thought, wow, if this could just be in one place, if I could right. just go as a patient to one place and they go, here's your doctor, here's your lawyer, here's this, because I had to send stuff to all these different people, it would have just been amazing. Amazing. Well, and patients get lost in that maze. Yeah, I for mean, sure. I have a slide that when I talk, is that here's the typical situation. And it's like, zzz, zzz, people running around in circles, going here, going there. But in, the, in an integrated kind of delivery system, where every, and everybody's communicating about the patient. Right. All that changes. Because they have your x-rays. They already have your this and your that. Right. It makes so much sense. It makes so much sense. Right. I don't know why everybody doesn't do that. <laughs> well, there, there are a lot of them. You know, there are a lot of centers. I mean, there's neurosurgery. There's all kinds. Yeah. But the, the, the key is that now with the drive to everything moving to an outpatient setting, things we used to do in the hospital, we don't do anymore. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're doing some of these major spine cases and surgery centers and sending them home 24 hours later. That's change. That's innovation. Yes. Yeah. I mean, my dad just had a, a spinal stimulator put in not that yeah, long ago. Yeah, dorsal column. Yeah. 
yeah he like he's in his 90s and you know amazing i i think it was amazing for him i think it really helped him a lot i have a girlfriend now who's going through injections for her back every you know she fell at work and and uh, but you know it's not working so it's like you know where do you go because not that many people really understand it your family doctor doesn't get it and then they send you to some you know she has like three million doctors she has to go see just because you know insurance 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 as you know they wreck everything really and and i think what happens with the patient is they think they find that they have to prove that they have this pain it's like how do i prove that i have this pain without people just saying, yeah, you know what, I, I know she's got pain. I can tell by, you know, her bulging disc that she's got pain. Obviously, that hurts. But as a patient, you're sitting there, gosh, don't, they don't believe me. What, what should I be doing? It's very, very unnerving and very upsetting for the patients. And, and particularly in pain more than any other field, I mean, yeah. that I saw, I've seen, because there is a tendency to dismiss is it psychological pain? Yeah. Is it pain with a somatic, a physical origin? Yeah. And, and chronic pain patients are so obsessed from, from every point of view because the pain just takes over everything. That's right. And people don't want to listen to them. No. They think that they're crazy. I mean, I've had chronic pain for 18 years. I, I live it and, and I've spoken about it. And it's, it's you know, there are things that you can do to not eliminate, but, you know, just to put it on the back burner and, and not tune in. I say, you don't dial into your pain, but it's hard when people don't believe you. And I don't talk about it because nobody wants to, nobody cares if I got pain or not. They can't feel your pain. It's like pain, right? But to the walking wounded, as I, as I going to call them, because I oh, work yeah. with, that, with a pain specialist, you know, it's, I think if, if people would just acknowledge, yes, you have pain. I think that's all they really want is an acknowledgement that, yep, you have it. And then they go, oh, okay, I can relax now. I don't have to prove it. I don't have to do anything special. I just have it. And I live well, with it. Well, but, but I also think, Frankie, there's been so much effort put towards dismissing their pain. Yes. That, you know, uh, well, just go walk around, or if you do this, it'll be better. And that's not the answer. Because for them, for the patient, all they can think and feel and talk about is the pain. Right, right. You know? Yeah, when I was in the hospital, you know, they I, when I was in rehab, they sent me to go and talk to all the patients because I didn't act like a normal pain patient, you know. You don't, right? You don't. And, and and so I went to talk to them, and you know, but pain is subjective, and so like somebody losing a fingernail was like somebody else breaking their back. I mean, it really is that extreme. And I had a, you know, there was a a, a roommate with me who literally broke her fingernail. She was like screaming, "Oh, what's the matter? She goes, I broke my fingernail!" And I'm like, "Are you kidding me right now?" <laughs> <laughs> I had two broken legs, hip and pelvis, and like you're crying about your, you know, your big. It's all relative, Frankie. It's all relative, exactly, exactly. But yeah, it's very interesting. It's very interesting to see. And so I, I, I said, I'm going to go around and see if people are positive and negative. What were your parents? Are they positive or negative? Does it make a difference when you're a patient on how you're going to respond? You know, right. with it, which outlook are you going to take? It, it, it's, it's very interesting, really. Well, it is. And so much of it, I mean, you know, it's all part of our background or how we grew up, how we perceive things. And, and there's also this point, particularly with chronic pain, you know, traumatic pain has a beginning and an end. Yes. But with chronic pain or something like fibromyalgia, yes, it, it never ends. You always have to be attuned to it and find ways and hopefully non-opioid ways yeah. to deal with it. Because yeah. you know, what, what we all grew up with was, well here, 
take oxycodone, do, you know, do whatever you need to. And it was only until interventional pain became recognized as a specialty that you started having procedures like Dr. Fromm, the gentleman I worked with in LA. I went in there and I thought, oh my God, I, I, this is a whole new world. And there's a lot of demand. Uh, you know, and when you're in pain, the only thing you can think about is that. But even, even you know, with the opioids, like my, my pain specialist had said to me at the very beginning, he goes, you know, it's like, he goes, first of all, I don't know how you're walking around, but nothing. But it, it <laughs> right. was, it was, you have to, as a patient, you have to look at it like insulin. If you need that, then you need it. And people right. are going, oh my God, oh my God, you're going to die. You know, you're, no, because you don't get high when you're in real pain. Exactly. Right. It, you don't, it, it's not like you don't abuse it. You don't have to abuse anything. It's just, it's, it's what you need to take to get you through that day. And all these people is, is kind of like with abortions, right? All these people telling you how to live your life. They're not living with the pain. They're not living with the unwanted child. They're not living with, you know, what, the thing that you live with every day. And so you have to be strong enough to be your own advocate and, and you know, and find a doctor who's compassionate because they're hard to find. They don't, they don't, they don't take pain in medical school, right? It's not really something that they understand. So they go, oh, well, you know, you're in pain. Oh, it'll go away. Don't worry about it. Well, remember, most of the pain specialists started out being an anesthesiologist. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so what does that tell you? Yeah. Okay. But, but you're absolutely right. But it's, but it's changed. I mean, the American Board of Anesthesia actually recognized it as a field about 15 or more years ago. Um, and, and, and they've been trying to change. It used to be that pain specialists always did anesthesia. Now the, the, the reality of it is you either do pain or you do anesthesia. Uh, okay. So there's a double, it's a field that you, you go off on after exactly. a certain point. Okay. Interesting. I hadn't heard that. That's interesting. Yeah. So is there something for, cause you brought up fibromyalgia. Is there something for fibro? For those patients, because I know a lot of people in a lot of pain with fibro, Lyme disease, well, things like that. You know, there's it's a very very difficult syndrome to to deal with. Okay, yeah. Um, you know, there are now modalities out. You know, we're on a big push to eliminate opioids and find other solutions. Right. So there's a really exciting um, solution. It's a it's a temporary, but it's a it's an implant that goes into your ear. Oh, and they use it to detox patients, but they also are using it for pain. Oh, and wow. the results in the patients, and it's not experimental. I mean, it's on yeah. the market. It's available, but it's had phenomenal results. And we even uh, on September 12th met with Medicare and their COVID task force about getting a, a coverage decision geared towards it so that we could help facilitate getting people and using Would that be it as, amazing yeah and using it as a screening because there's also a permanent one on the market but the permanent one is much more expensive medicare has a co-payment they make what do they call it? it do they have a name for it oh, yeah well the the it's a um percutaneous nerve stimulator and there's a company called Diasis that makes them. This is the temporary one. And then VHS makes the permanent one. And they okay. just got a major approval in January, November, January of 2020 to let them be done in surgery centers and all of that. But if you first tried the temporary one and it worked, you wouldn't need the permanent one. 
Right, right. Yeah, that's amazing. So if you're listening, and I know you guys are, some of you, you know, this is this is like breakthrough. Stuff. Is, and this, this is what is, you do. Yeah. This is why you have this consortium of all this innovation and, and because you find these things. And you know, I mean, I told people we we're going to talk about concussion. So we are going to talk about concussion because you, you really have, you know, it's an epidemic proportions. And, and it's something that, you know, is near and dear, I think for you, you've come up with a couple of, you know, innovations there. So let's, let's, talk about because you know I, I was a hockey mama 14 years sure they had a concussion I'm sure my son had a concussion at some point and I know some parents who who you know children did have a concussion young under the age of 12 and still let them play and I'm like what like blew my mind well, but we didn't know you know it, yeah kind of knew so that your kid had a concussion and maybe that wasn't safe I well, as I think maybe you, you don't know think. everything but well, it depends on the level of, of it, it depends on the levels, you yeah. know, the coach, the athletic director, the yeah. doctor that they hopefully took him to, um, yeah. and the parent, because most parents don't necessarily know there's some subtle signs of a concussion that you, ha you have to have a medical degree to look for. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But there's such a lack of education about it. That, you know, that's why I was, you know, um, the more you hear from some of these professional athletes and others, yeah. education is the key into really to helping anyone. So I never marketed for patients, you know, running centers. I, we did educational programs and that was, you know. Amazing. So you, you, ha you, there's the prophylactic product, the, the Prevy Pro. The, the, right. Is that how they pronounce Pro. it? Yeah. So, which is something that you would just it's a, a like a ointment that you would just put on your neck I or use, something. I use it twice a day just Do in you case. really? Okay. Well, because so in it case you used, it's just a, a botanical holistic brain friendly if you will, you know, antioxidant heavy cream. Okay. And it can be used we did safety studies uh, with children playing flag football. Uh 63 of them we wanted to put it on both sides of their necks see if it had any adverse events. None. Uh, we've, you know, we're, we have, we know that it helps with elderly and falling, and that's a major problem. Um, and we believe, and we know that even in the case of the military, it's a do no harm. Right. And, and, you know, Brett Favre has just been a great guy to help, you know, pioneer all of this. And because of his own and an investor, a big investor yeah. in it. Um, so what does it, what is it, the purpose then it, as a profile, what, what, do you hope it will do or what do they say it will do for you if you hit your head? Well, here's the bottom line. If you hit your head, there's swelling and there's inflammation. If you have a cream that has a lot of antioxidants in it, you would presume we can't make medical claims. No, no, no. But I get that. We believe that, you know, um, this cream is a do no harm. And uh, hopefully with the, with the ingredients in it, it will help some of the symptoms. It's not going to prevent anything. Right. Uh, it's not going to treat anything, but it, it's a do no harm. Okay. Now, so we, do, you, do you expect any kind of um, assistance? Like if you were to have a stroke or anything, would that help at all? We're in our experience and, and in the literature, the medical literature, antioxidants uh, are tied to brain support. Okay. We didn't make that up. Right. Okay. 
So on the, uh, now, what we are going to do to really specifically address your question, we did the safety studies to make sure that it wouldn't cause reactions in any right. child. It didn't. It's a small number. We'll increase it. What we want to do next are some cognitive studies with analyzing the function of the child or the adult or the military uh, before the cream and then after the application. Okay. And that will then give us, we, we know from animal studies that this cream gets in we, with dogs that we did, this cream gets into the brain within 20 or 30 minutes. It peaks at two hours and it stays there for six hours. Now, what, what we don't know is what did it really do? But it's just like, you know, rubbing Arnica on a bruise. Yeah. It's not going to hurt it. Right could help it. Right. But once we do the additional studies, we'll have more information. It'd be fascinating. I mean, you know, it could be Alzheimer's, anything. Who knows what the who, brain's going to Who pop. knows these days? Yeah. And, you know, I even, um, we were doing a camp in, um, Shreveport, in uh, Shreveport, Louisiana. And uh, we had all these ex-football players. And one of them was this wonderful young man who had gotten a hammer Somebody hit him with a mallet and smashed his skull in. Oh, jeez! Wow! Multiple times. His mother drives a big rig, you know. Yeah, a truck. I love it. I, I, she's just great, and um, she met me there, and we were putting the cream on the kids before the, the uh, things, and she said, "I I think that could help my son. I need to talk to you." Oh. And and so and he was in the hospital. Everybody said he was going to die. She said, "My my son's not going to die." I mean, she was so strong about that. And I gave her some. I said, look, I don't know, but maybe it helps. She called me two weeks later and said, he's more alert. Do you think it's that? I said, we don't know, but be grateful. Yeah, yeah. So he he's still using it. And, uh, you know, I stay in touch with all these families. But, sure. You know, there's, you just never know. And, That's it. And, and, and quite frankly, um, she's, she's been recommending it. I mean, she's very excited about it. And, and now he's even gotten well enough that he can do many more activities. So, and I can't say that that was us. I think it's a combination of things, but it's not going to hurt you. Right. Right. But the next, the other drug, the, the Prevacus, if, if that's how you pronounce it, that goes at the cellular level. Now that's affecting you at the cellular level. Right. The reason we came out with the cream um, too is they complement one another. I mean, the, you're going to be able to get this. It's thirty nine ninety nine. You know, we're coming out with it. Very, Walgreens very will have it or something like. Well, we'll eventually, but it'll also be online, direct access market. Okay. Um, uh, we have a website set up, prevprocream.com. But so with Prevacus, um, uh, a brilliant scientist, Dr. Jake Van Landingham, um, and, and the toxicologist, Mike Lewandowski, came up with this steroid that is used as an inhalant transnasally through your nose uh, that goes directly to the brain. So it's a neurosteroid, it's a nanoparticle, and you can deliver this anywhere. This is the beauty of this. So. It was the first um, drug to ever treat a concussion, and it can be delivered on the field of battle, on the football, on the side of the road, in an ambulance, going to the hospital, anywhere. 
And it took us a little while because Dr. Van Landingham, when the first formulation would have cost about $1,000 for 13 treatments with insurance, he reformulated it and so that it would be 300 so that it could be accessible to everyone. Yeah. So so we have uh, the phase 1A and B getting ready to start in Australia. From there, uh, we've already talked with the FDA about a fast track. Um, to get it to the market and also for the military because it's really needed with the military as well. Uh, amazing. You know, Marcy, we talked it just before we came on about you writing a book. And I mean, my <laughs> gosh, you just have so many amazing stories. You're at the forefront of so much, you know, good and change in the world. Really, it, it's so exciting. How, how amazing, like out there with your sword. Now I read, you know, your next battle is guns. Well, you know, it's Among other me, things, I'm sure. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, I, I don't understand. I mean, may, and maybe I'm too old. I don't know. But I don't know how guns get in the hands of children. Neither I don't do know I. how this whole phenomena has been created where children are killing other children. I mean, I grew up where we played battlefield with my brothers and sisters, yeah. but we didn't kill each other. We might have run them over on a, with a bicycle or something, but we survived. I mean, yeah, yeah. This, whole genre is just beyond me and I think it, it's it, it, it's it has to start at a grassroots level but it has to go up through so many areas and there's so much resistance because you've you've got the people who you know use this as a way to make their living and then you have the people uh, that are in it for the wrong reasons but I I'm just so upset about this whole phenomenon well, you know, children follow their parents. And I mean, I, I don't live in the US. I live in Canada. And we don't have any provinces that have gun laws where you can carry a, a, a gun anytime, anywhere. And, you know, I was watching the election in uh, Arizona and, and, and different places. Oh, they're out front. They got guns, but they're allowed to have their guns. And I mean, you can, it doesn't take a, a brain scientist to figure out that you've got two hostile, you know, groups sitting out front. I want, you know, who one who wants this president, one who wants that president, and we're carrying guns, not a lot of explosive necessary to start the guns going off. That's just the there, right? But these are, these are parents who own guns. Children of parents who own guns see this and think it's okay because it's, it's my right to own a gun. It's your right to own a gun too, Junior. You're going to get one when you get 12 years old or whatever it is. Eight. I mean, eight, eight years know. old. Yeah. But and so, wow, crazy. Well, and then there's the whole element of the dark web. And that's a big part of this, okay, with these children especially. Now, some of these children are troubled from the onset. Yeah. And, and, and where that came from, you know, who knows. But so many countries around the world do not have the problem we do. Why? Because people aren't allowed to have guns. Exactly. Exactly. I just don't understand this need uh, to, to own a gun um, my husband's family's from out West, love owning guns, gun, you know, made me a table that has a gun holder underneath it. I'm like, okay, I'll never use that. But thanks. Anyway, it's not in my vocabulary. It's not in my brain to even think that way. And yet, you know, there's a whole group of people who feel it's their, their right to, to bear arms. They're afraid the government's going to turn against them. They're afraid whatever they're afraid of. It, it's silly. But children, you know, I think with the video and all this stuff, it, all the killing, um, and it's so gratuitous and everything that you see, it becomes not real, I think. 
they think they might just get up again and walk away. Who knows what kids think? Yeah, well, yeah, and 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 some of the the uh, shootings at the schools, these were very well planned. Yes, well thought out. I mean, by eight-year-olds, it you know, or in some cases there was one that was seven. It is just astonishing to me. And now children are having to be trained about what what happens to you. Like I have this one of my nieces you know, just started kindergarten and they have to go through a whole course about how to protect yourself. Yeah. If there's a gunman in your school. Right. And Jeez. if the gunman's one of, one of your classmates. So, you know, I, I, I just find that a very, very sad state of affairs about what's happening here. And you don't see it in other countries as much no. as we do here. So what are we going to do? We're going to keep watching it. I don't know. I if I know. can be a catalyst for change, I will. We already know you're a great catalyst for change. <laughs> I'm sure something's yeah, going to well. happen somewhere. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe it's going to take, you know, I don't know what it's going to take, but. I don't know what it's going to take. People, I don't, you know, Charlton Heston's of the world who thinks it's great to own a gun, then you can have people who will side with that, I guess. I, well, I, I Hopefully you can prevent, you know, it'd be great if you could just have a country that you don't need to arm yourself you have a wonderful military why would you need to arm yourself well i think the police sagas coming out are telling a story of why you need to arm yourself yeah. you know well um, and that, but that makes it dangerous too right that oh, yeah. that will kill you. Yeah. right i have to carry a gun because i'm being discriminated against and i'm being killed you know yeah yeah because i'm black or chinese right. or it's just it, it's but just carry that to the next step i'm black right you're targeting me i'll shoot you first now what happens to me right. well you just shot a police officer end. you're gonna go into jail or get killed yourself like it doesn't end it's like it's a non-ending situation until there's no more gun and exactly i think it begins and ends with the guns i yeah. totally agree with you frankie yeah um and the fact that we have no ability to control this outcome is really disturbing. And I think I'm pretty sure I read that, you know, some of the controls were taken away from um, you, the necessity of controls was taken away from owning a gun. So it makes it easier today to get a gun than it was maybe four, six years ago. Yeah. Because you know? there's not, not as much scrutiny. Yeah. I mean, you can have mental health problems. Oh, that's okay. Well, and, there, and there's no screening for it. You know, they don't give you a card and say, I'm a psychopath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is true. But, I mean, look at Los Angeles. Oh, my God. Like, that was a crazy situation. Just crazy. Or not Los Angeles. Sorry, I mean, uh, Vegas, Las Vegas. Yeah, I mean, it was just nuts. Vegas was nuts. And I had, I had friends of mine that were there. I mean, this was a festival, for God's sake. Yeah, yeah. A country festival, right? Country music. Yeah. So it doesn't really matter. I've done, they've been to nightclubs. They've been to Manchester. I mean, they've been all over the world. Yeah. So there, but until, I mean, and until we can determine some type of um, control over the situation, whether it be through laws or screenings or whatever, it's, it, it's not going to get. Anybody. Yeah. Well, maybe we need to start with hate. You know, hate, hate for gay people, <laughs> yeah, hate for black hate. people, hate for, you know, everything that's different from me. Maybe that's where we need to start again and again. I agree again. with you. That's a very good statement. 
Yeah, I totally agree. But you know, it runs both ways, the advocates and the, you know, and, and it becomes so indoctrinated into a person's psyche that it's, it's difficult and children see all of this. So all, a lot of times they're just replicating what they see. Oh, for sure. For sure they are. Yeah. I mean, you have to teach your children. You have to, hey, right now, I'm just grateful somebody teaches their children to say please and thank you. Really, (laughs) honestly, like manners don't seem to even be entered anymore. Like, I went to primary school. We had to stand up, you know, and say, may I please and thank you and and all of that. So, I mean, that was like hitting to your head. But it's nice. The niceties are are, seem to be going away. and, And that's unfortunate. I well, I, and I think right now with all that we're all going through with COVID-19, you know, I really appreciated the some of the beautiful um, commercials and things that they started airing about. We're all in this together. And some of them yeah. had children and things like that. And at the end of the day, I mean, isn't that really what it's what it's about? We're all in this together. Now, what people do with that is another story. Right. The message is a message that's positive and one of acceptance and love if we can embrace that. Yeah. I mean, I just saw a post yesterday um, where all that love and outpouring of, of gratitude to the healthcare workers is now, why can't you do this faster? You know, what are you doing? You're so lazy and, you know, just turned over on its head. And it's like, people can't extrapolate. Like, I don't understand. Like, why can't you figure this out? How difficult it is for them. You know, like my daughter is, is, you know, herself, she's not in medical, but you know, she, she works um, in policing. And so, you know, we haven't hugged since February because she's worried that she's going to give me something. She, you know, she's a frontline worker. So it's like, you can't understand how, how difficult it is for these people. Like you can't, no, they just, you know, people are basically selfish today and it's unfortunate. And I'm sad for that. Well, empathy has to continue. <laughs> right. Uh, but like, try, play it forward. Okay. And I'm a big believer in playing it forward. So, you know, I think that in the face of all of this adversity that we're encountering, uh, you know, I've, I've experienced personally people who feel very, very strongly about wearing masks. And I feel, okay, six feet away, I'm okay. Mm-hmm. But I can't tell you the number of times, like if I go out for a walk and I'm r- running or walking, fast walking, people come up and they want to, you know, where's your mask? Where's your mask? So it, a lot of that, all of this hate, I think, comes from fear. Yes. It doesn't, you know? And so what do you do with something like that? Well, you can tell them something nasty and maybe that makes you feel better. I always want to take the high road and say, look, I'm sorry, don't be upset. I'll be fine. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, here it's the law. You have to wear a mask. You can't go out without a mask. I mean, that's just the law. And and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. You know, if... if um, well, now, but before we had yeah, the before law. Yeah, you, before you had the law. Yeah, I mean, everybody has their, their own level of, you know, where they think they're, they're good, where they think they're right. safe, right? right. Um, some people think masks don't work. Some people think they do, you know, I don't know, but I think that, that, you know, doctors wear a mask in, in surgery for a reason. I don't know if it's, you know, so I figure it has to work a little bit, you have, but it has to be the proper mask. I do think that a lot of the masks people are wearing don't fit. They don't wear them properly. Like what is the point if you're not going to, you know, do it hundred percent kind of thing. So, but distancing, washing your hands and wearing a mask. I mean, 
if that's all it takes right now, if that's all we can do. Why is that such a hardship? I don't get that. It's not. It's yeah. really not. I mean, it's not any different than what you do on a daily basis. You know, you wake up, you, you know, brush your teeth, take a shower. Right, right. And, and, and so then you hear, oh, well, you're taking away my rights. What rights? I don't understand what rights are being taken away. I think you're enhancing your right to be safe, right. <laughs> not taking right. away. So it's all a perspective, right? It's all perspective. Right. And if you're going right. to walk six feet away from somebody, you don't need to have a mask on. And if you're going to go into a store and breathe on people, then maybe you should have a mask on. It's, right. you know, but it's, if that's the law, then that's the law and you wear it and you don't have to complain right. about it. Right. And that's, that's kind of it. Well, it doesn't do any good to complain about it. No, it doesn't. It doesn't do any good. It's a waste of energy. But I think it, you know, it shows compassion and I get compassion fatigue because people, you know, you go so long and then it's like, it's like giving to charity and giving to charity. And then it's like, Oh, forget it. I'm done. It happens. And I'm sure you know all about that. Oh yeah. Well, I've been down that road and um, you know, look right now, we need things to be uh, be able to do things that make us feel better, uh, feel more in control of our environment. So yeah. that's why I'm working. I mean, everything that because of the um, the pandemic, you know, I, I was working to bring all these drugs to market. I was on a, a fundraiser. I was got getting my center set up around the country. And then everything came to a screeching halt because, you know, they canceled elective surgery, they canceled this, they canceled that. So what do you do? Well, you could sit around and say, okay, I can't do anything anymore. I'm going to give up. That's not my DNA. So I got into PPE, which is the craziest, craziest thing I've ever done in my life because Number one, um, I thought, well, I've got to be able to continue to support myself since my clients are struggling and they yeah. can't. And then number two, I know man, I've worked with medical manufacturers my whole career. I, I know patients, I know doctors, and I in the overall I want to help because there has to be a way to get the supplies. I mean, I get stories of hospitals that they're down to their last 90-day supply and they're rewashing them. So I said, I can do this. I can deal with the crazy as long as I feel like I'm healthy. So what would you say then? I, I'm really interested in your perspective on this. What do you say to the folks who think it's all a hoax that, that you know, it's the hospital, the people don't really have COVID and the hospitals aren't really full and, you know, all of this talk about uh, PPEs and stuff, it's just, it's just fake stuff. Like they've got it if they need it. What do you say? That's not true. Okay. Uh, it's absolutely not true. And right now, because of the second and third wave of this thing coming, there's a need for at least 48 to eight, eight, 800 billion gloves that are not available in the market. There's a need for mass. Um, and, and so unless you're right on the front, I guess you don't get that. But um, PPE is a business, 90% of it are fake buyers, 90% of it are fake sellers, and 90% of the goods are fake. They don't wow. really have them, they arbitrage them. It's like, you know, turning over houses. Yeah. And I didn't know that when I got into this, but it, it's, it's the wild, wild west of the medical field. I want to be the difference. So I teamed up with a critical care nurse who worked in ICUs 
And we now have created a direct with a factory in China relationship, so we don't have to go through brokers or dealers. And we're going to the hospital that needs a million masks, because that's considered a small order, because sure. nobody else will touch them. Wow. Okay? We're going to the places where they say, well, can you get me 20,000? Nobody will touch them. We're also doing the larger ones, but the goal is that we want to help America and every hospital, every doctor, every, if there are small quantities or they can't get them, we want to give them to them. Like it's unconscionable that, that doctors and especially nurses had to reuse masks, reuse filthy masks and go well, to- And reuse washing gloves. Yeah. Wow. Like that's just, it's mind boggling that it would ever come to that and that it did come to that and that and that people think that this is fake like how do you believe that all these people who are sick who are in icus now who are dying who did die how, i don't understand how they think that's just fake well here's what i think has happened uh, you know just from my bird's eye view of my view alone i think that the statistics in the hospitals tell you the true story i think testing has over create has magnified to a large proportion things that lead to believing that there's this huge epidemic and in fact it's the same person who went back and got a covid test every day yeah yeah so you know the whole testing thing leads it to some numbers i mean medscape today which is a recognized journal has said we don't really know how many cases there are out there because some of the testing has gone askew. Right. A group of leading researchers and PhDs in universities in Canada recently and England, you know, came out with a statement that we're not paying attention to the right parameters. It's not how many cases there are. It's who's in the hospital, who's dying, what are the statistics there? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, so I think that there's a lot of reason. And I think that the, uh, the media has paid so much attention to 700 billion today that we lost sight of some things. And that scares people. Yeah. I, I think all of this is a fear response. So, you know, I, I think it's crazy that a hospital, even if they only need 100,000 masks, can't get it. Yeah. I mean, and that's real. I know that's real. Yeah. I think that's um, crazy too. I, that's crazy. And, you know, I know that a lot of people, they, they bring it down to politics. It's Democrats and, you know, Republicans. They're the ones that are, but I said, like, I had to tell my American friends, like, COVID isn't just in the United States. It's around the world. They don't care about your politics around the world. Right. We don't right. care about it in Canada. Canada, we have our own COVID cases. And, you know, like, we're worrying about that. So the right. fact that, that, you know, some people think it's fake because it's a politicized thing. No, it's not. It's. A global thing so <laughs> well the statistics I mean the, to, to refute that just look at the countries now France England uh, more of Europe has locked down again yes um, you know it's a worldwide epidemic China's doing fine yeah now they've managed to control it all of it but you can't say this is political because if it was political, India wouldn't be suffering the way they are. Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. But you look at, at Korea did amazing. Um, you know, uh, New Zealand did pretty good. And I, like, I mean, I read today in Canada that nine air, air, nine airplanes 
you know, spread COVID around wherever they went and because they were all infected. And so now, like, why are you flying? Don't be flying people around who have COVID. It's like, it's crazy. Like people kind of need to stay, I think, in one spot for a little bit until you can get things under control. Otherwise, it's just like, you know, one case comes in and from out of town or from out of India to Toronto and then now everybody's got it again. Like, well, I think you have to just yourself. stop. Yeah. yeah, you just have to stop for a few minutes and say, let's get this under control. Until it's under control, let's keep all the players where they are, you know, so we know. Because it didn't seem like our country, your country was doing very well at contact tracing. Didn't seem like that was going too good. So right, you need a new plan. Well, and you know, for me, I mean, before March 7th, I flew every week, sometimes cross countries, working over in Kuwait, doing all of this. And I mean, I'm like, you know, I was big milers, American, Alaska. I haven't gotten on a plane since March 7th. That was my last trip because I've got too much I want to do. And there's no reason now to fly. Nobody's asking you to fly anywhere. That's right. Um, so, you know, I miss it. It was, you know, it's kind of addicting yeah. that, you're, you know, you're not running to an airport and getting on a plane and all your friends and this and that. But um, there's too much to be done. And it's not safe right now. No, it's not safe. And, you know, like my dad lives in Mexico. I canceled our flights March 17th. We're supposed to be down in Mexico in March, um, you know, to celebrate his birthday, 96th birthday. And, you know, we, we weren't able to go. And I just hope that he can hang on until, I mean, he's healthy but hope you know until there's a handle on COVID and we can go through if I could drive I would but we can't get into the states can't, you can't. <laughs> the I don't know how to get to Mexico without going through the U.S. So if there was a way I'll figure it out but there's there is hope on the horizon I yeah mean, the new the vaccine that Pfizer like a, vaccine they're they're thinking December whatever starting it so moderna moderna has one johnson and johnson they're all trying to get to the finish line and once we we have a treatment we just need a vaccine and um from what you're hearing sorry i had to turn that off for a second what you were hearing in the medical community seems um promising with the vaccine yes i mean with like anything there's going to be the people say well no they don't have enough data we can't test it but it, from what I've heard and what I've read, mm-hmm. uh, yes, it's and and Pfizer had the highest number of, of uh, participants in their studies. Oh, did they? Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, I know that they're, they're saying data. it's like ninety percent effective, which is pretty good. Right? They tested it against the antibody, so let's hope. Yeah. So what else? What after this is after you're back, you know, in the mainstream again? Where are you going? What do you hope to, to conquer? What do you, you've got this consortium of amazing businesses. Who, who, who would you like to bring in? Oh, no, I'm going to, I'm going to fund all of them. Um, that's why I started doing PPE uh, because, you know, can you imagine trying to raise money during the COVID-19? No, 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 it doesn't exist. So, um, so I'm, i whatever um, sales and things that I have, uh, it'll all go, go towards the consortium, starting first with Prevacus and Prevpro. And then we have an Alzheimer's drug, uh, again, reformulated as a transnasal delivery system. We have a phenomenal device that cures chronic pain in a 30-minute procedure. With repl- It's replication medical. It's called Gelstick. They've got ah. phenomenal, phenomenal data. I'll have to try that one. There you go. 30 minutes in an ASC. Great wow. results with data. 
and then we have actually a, a biologic um, that is injected and actually stops the growth and the extension of osteoarthritis in joints. Wow, so, that's huge. That's huge. Yeah, that's so where I'm going to focus. Yeah. Nice. Oh my gosh, Marcy, how how amazing is that? Well, it's going to take it's, it takes a village, <laughs> but um, you know, hopefully, with my efforts to I've, and I've had people reach out to me. Like I had this one group that said, "Well, we want to help give you the funds you need, you know, in a business kind of transaction." Sure, of course. So you know, I've had that kind of help, and and also with um, as I said, whatever I do in PPE goes to that. Yeah, that's going to be where it goes. Absolutely game changing, amazing. Like you are like this angel of mercy flying through you guys like giving your wand here and there to all these people who really really need your help that's that's incredible thank you i'm gonna thank well, you for your service because i think you've done just an amazing job i'm really well, excited it's, it's you know um i i i do all that i can do and so um you know i had i have a wonderful friend his name is les buck he is a world-renowned tennis player in the seniors and uh, two years ago, Les's cardiologist here in San Diego, where I live, called me and she said, I got this guy. Do you know anything that can help him? Because he can't walk and he's a 10. So I met Les and uh, he was hunched over, obviously in severe pain. And I lined up five different consults for him. He ended up going to Cedars and had surgery with Neil Anand, who's a friend of mine, front and back, uh, big operation. And six weeks later, I met him for lunch and he was standing, sitting upright. I didn't even recognize him because the, the pain was gone. The face is different. Like this young man, the face looked, I went, I walked up to the table and I said, Les? He said, yeah, it's me. I went, but you don't look like Les. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And uh, it is amazing when the pain goes. I got tested that I had, I had, you know, hip replacement last year and the, the, the grinding pain was just so extreme. And then after it was just like, people go, Oh, you look so different. I go, yeah. Like you're not clenched in, in pain. Yeah, his long. whole face. I mean, I swear to God, I did not recognize him. Uh, and, awesome. and when he stood up and now he's swimming, walking and uh, he says he's going to do some more tennis. More power to you, buddy. Go yeah, for it. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's amazing. You are just yeah. amazing. Thank you so much for sharing these stories with us and, and bringing these, you know, incredible products to market. Uh, it's really been a pleasure to talk to you, Marcy.